How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Yeah, nice one. That was. I mean, I, I, do you have the lung capacity? I mean, how are you doing with with all your lung capacity? Doing just Thank fine you. with my lung capacity. Thank you for checking in on my lung capacity. It seems quite cool. It's been a long time since I've checked. Yeah, yeah. Well, sorry, yeah. couldn't resist yeah. that. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, it sort of takes your breath away right away, doesn't it? Yep. Um, so, how's everybody doing? Mark, how are you doing? Doing fantastic, Dr. Joe. How are you? I'm doing really fantastic as well. And Tom, how are you doing? Well, it's January, Dr. Joe. <laughs> you know, oh. it's so it's so interesting you say that because it's been that way for about 20 days. How much longer? <laughs> What's it mean? 11. What does January mean to you, Tom McCoy? Well, I think for for myself and for a lot of people, January is just kind of not the best time of year. It's very dismal. People have seasonal affective disorder and you just kind of manage through it. Yeah, it's true. We have this, uh, this tendency to want to hibernate in the winter. A lot of people would just sort of shut it down. Cause, and you know, there, there, there is a deep sort of sociobiological component to that because in the millions of years ago, in this particular weather, there wasn't as much food. There weren't as many resources it was cold, so you would want to just basically hunker down. And I think we still have that. So let me let me just tell you a little bit. Um, a, a really interesting thing happened tonight when I was calling a local place for dinner. It's this place, Anthony's, which has, is a, basically a sub shop, pizza place. And I call up, haven't called them in a, a few months, right? Because uh, in part because they do a lovely thing for their employees. They all take Christmas off. And the holiday season off, and they shut down the restaurant for two weeks, which I think is really a nice thing. It's a very, it's a small little place. So I call up and uh, I order what I usually order, and this guy says, "Do you want anything else?" And I say, "You know, I don't. You know, I haven't had a lot. How about some buffalo chicken tenders?" And this guy says, "You know, I see your cell phone number here, and I have here. We actually owe you." some buffalo chicken tenders from about three months ago. Because remember, the stuff that we gave you, you called us up, it was a little overdone. And we felt terrible about it. So we have given you a coupon so you can get your buffalo chicken tenders on us. The guy's name was Perry. He's the owner of Anthony's here in Marshfield. And that small change, it had an influence. You know, you control no one, you influence everyone. That's part of the I am. This guy, I'd completely forgotten. He didn't need to remind me. He could have saved, you know, himself, like, you know, whatever the cost is. But he, he said something. Isn't that a lovely, lovely story? He's a great guy. You know, you know him, right? I do. He's a great, great human being. Yeah. And, and this, this is the spirit of the I am. So what did he do? I called to make an order 
and he reminded me of my value because they were taking responsibility for something that had happened months ago that I had completely forgotten about. I think that those, those are the things that really demonstrate this wonderful part of who we are as human beings, you know, because it encompasses a whole bunch of brain stuff, memory, his memory, not mine, um, accountability, and then saying, you know, something happened back then, we're going to do something about it now. I mean, it's pretty amazing, I think. Small change, big effect. So I wanted to share that with, with the audience because we can do this for each other. It's not just taking accountability. It's, it's really just letting people know that they're valuable, especially if you're running a small shop somewhere, you know how important it is that your customers feel like they are not just a credit card, but somebody that has a personal relationship with you. And now I have a personal relationship with, the owner of Anthony's, so I will be going there more often. So let me let me tell you a couple of things that are happening. As people may know, my next book, my fifth book, is coming out in February. If all goes well, it will be released February nineteenth, which coincides with my my dear mother's birthday. She's long past, but I wanted to honor her as well. It is called Unleashing the Power of Respect, the I Am Approach. And for those of you who have been listening to the show, you know what the I Am is. You know, it's, it's this very simple way of, of reminding people of value. We're all doing the best we can at every moment in time. But if you don't mind, I, I got an email from a nurse that I had trained years ago who is now working with me again as a student. And I hope she won't mind me reading it, but this was completely unsolicited. I am. As a nurse working directly with the I am approach on an inpatient psychiatric unit, I can tell you that it not only positively changed the patient's lives, but it has transformed how I practice nursing and function in my everyday life. Many people that work in the field will tell you that working with the adolescent population at the crisis level of care can be especially challenging, but the I am approach greatly reduces those challenges by applying things that are such important factors to every human being, respect, value, and trust, which all occur as a result of the I am approach. I have had the pleasure of seeing the I am transform patients' lives and have been inspired by Dr. Schran, the I am approach, and these wonderful patients to pursue my degree as a PMHNP, which means a prescribing nurse, and look forward to using this life-changing approach in my own practice. What a wonderful world it would be if we could all see each other as doing the very best we can in this exact moment. Isn't that completely unsolicited and spontaneous? It's, you're touching people. You know, you're moving people by this, the I am approach. And I hope people... Um get excited about it and buy the book because it's something that everybody, if everybody understood this, the world would be a much better place. I, you know, I've lived with this now. I created it in 1982. It's 40 years. Wow. The only thing that's a little bit older than that is Zoom, right? Because <laughs> as you guys may know, I, I did Zoom 50 years ago, 1972, and it absolutely had an influence on what I do even now, all these years later, because it taught me about diversity, respect, about being a, 
person who respects and values and trusts. We, we were just seven kids who'd come together from different walks of life. And for those people who know about Zoom, you know that WGBH has now released the first episode. You can get it for free, wgbh.org backslash Zoom 5.0. And it takes you to a page. And not only is the video there, but there is a sign up for a free webinar that is going to be next Wednesday night. Although if you're listening to this a year or two from now, it would have been next Wednesday night, but it is probably going to be on tape. It's going to be on January 26, 2022. And it will be an interview by David Camp, who was one of our guests here on the show, who wrote a book about children's television in the 70s called Sunny Days. He didn't write it in the 70s. He wrote it recently about the 70s. And he will be interviewing us. David Camp interviewing the Zoom kids and Christopher Sarson. Guys, go to that website, wgbh.org backslash Zoom 5.0, and you can sign up. I think we've already posted it on our website as well and on our Facebook page. Um, so please, please check it out. I would really appreciate it. And it's free. And we're just going to be hanging out, chatting with this guy. So, so who is our guest tonight? What's really nice to our listeners, we only have two commercial breaks, so we can go a little bit longer. Who is our guest tonight, Tom McCoy? So, Dr. Joe, we had a watch party for uh, Zoom, the, the 50th anniversary thing. And I think what's happening then is happening now, where when I sent you the link to join, you forwarded that link to everyone else attending. So everyone showed up as you. Oh, my goodness. So our guest tonight in the panelists, we, I'm seeing Dr. Joe. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That You know what? That could be me. It the whole time? Me. This you, whole time it's been me. Is it the author, Dr. Joe? It is. Is it, Tom, is it the author, Dr. Joe? It doesn't say author. I, I can change it if you want. <laughs> no, it's okay. What's yes. his name? Dr. Joe. Dr. Okay. Joe, the author. Sorry. I'm, uh... it. Yes, it is me. I am the guest tonight, and I am so honored to be on my own show. But anyway, tonight, what, what I'm really, really excited about, folks, is giving you a little preview of Unleashing. So Unleashing the Power of Respect takes several of the patients, patient teachers that I have worked with and, um, and ex tells their story, but then explores them through an I am lens because we've spent a lot of time saying that people are sick and pathologizing them. We use words like disorder and we use them so glibly that people now it's part of our vernacular. And yet, Whenever you use the word disorder, you actually separate people into two groups. You guys have heard me say this before. One group is order and one group is disordered. Which group are you going to trust? Because ultimately, the psychiatric conditions, because some people may behave that you don't know why, you mistrust them. And this mistrust moves us backwards into feeling devalued and disrespected. Because if respect leads to value and value leads to trust, mistrust is going to go backward. It will lead to feeling devalued and then disrespected. And I believe that's part of what's happening in our entire world. 
that we see people and we don't trust them. And then we create these conflicts. The IM is saying we can do something different. We can do something different. We can always remind someone of their value. And I am so excited because I have written this, but you know what? I've never heard anyone read it. Are you ready? So I am ready. Tom and Mark are going to read and let's, let's listen and then let's see what happens. I am ready, please, whenever you are. Chapter three, Lady with a Gun. I don't think I love her. No. Jan answered my question with a resigned sadness. She was a 34-year-old single mother of a feisty 10-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl named Bridget. Bridget had been brought to my office by her mother, Jan. And before that, Jan had been brought to my office by her own mother, Anne. The three were together in the room with me. Jan did not say a single word. The initial history had been given by Anne, who told me that Bridget was terrorizing Jan, not listening and being disrespectful and demanding. The story was not unusual, but it was odd that Jan said nothing in response. Nothing. Bridget sat next to her grandmother, apart, distant, and separated from Jan, fidgeting while she drew with her crayons. She didn't look particularly oppositional and had begun drawing her and her family doing something together. But she was drawing a dog, then another, and another. The dogs were stick figures, but with large, sharp teeth. They were of different sizes, and the smallest looked the most intimidating. The largest of the dog's eyes that seemed vocacious and distant. It was also the furthest away from the smallest dog. The middle dog was facing the smallest one. And the two larger dogs were facing away from each other. Bridget doesn't listen to her mother, and barely to me, continued Anne. She has seen two therapists and refuses to take any medication. Jan needs help taking care of her. Jan still had not done more than introduce herself for the session, but only with prompting from her mother. While her mother talked, Jan seemed far, far away. Her eyes distant, her mouth drawn down, a void of expression, the epitome of what psychiatrists call the flat and blunted effect. Even as her mother criticized, declaring Jan unable to rein in her child, Jan expressed only minimal emotion. One could imagine how distant she was with her own daughter. If this was the most connection she could muster, she said nothing. But I was not sure whether this response was part of the mother-daughter dynamic between Jan and Anne, or if it extended to the dyad between Jan and her own child. Intuitively, I wanted to talk to Jan alone. When a psychiatrist has an intuition, it's important to follow it, to check in with one's own feelings. Unlike a GI doc, or a cardiologist, or any other specialty that has an instrument with which to look into the human body, a psychiatrist is the instrument. If we have a feeling about a patient, it is often a clue as to who that patient is, what the struggle is, and we are picking up on the unconscious emotions and the effects of them. Politely, I asked Anne and Bridget to wait in the seats outside my office so I could ask Jan some questions along. Although Anne bristled and Bridget complained she had not finished her drawing, the two did leave. I told Bridget she could take the crayons and paper with her, and I would look forward to hearing more about the pictures he had created. Anne glanced at Jan, even as Bridget walked right past her without a look. The door closed, and Jan and I were alone. So, I've heard from your mom. What's your take on your kid? There was a pause. 
Too long for a simple answer. Too long for the thoughts to formulate. It was a silence of a woman whose depression was slowing her thoughts, numbing her feelings. I almost asked the question again when Jan responded, I don't think I love her. I listened. She's a handful. Too much energy for me. I listened. Jan proceeded to tell the story of her daughter's birth. Jan had met Bridget's father after her first significant suicide attempt. While both were inpatients at a psychiatric hospital, Jan already had a history of multiple minor suicide attempts, most of which she had never admitted to anyone. She'd hidden years of self-injurious behaviors, mostly cutting, invisible under the sleeves of her clothes and pants. She never wore dresses. Frequent visits to the bathroom right after a meal disguised difficulties with food, purging the offending material from her body. Food binges were easier to manage, alone, late at night. Two boxes of cookies easily evacuated with the finger down the throat. Although not my patient, I found myself asking the routine questions one asks while taking a psychiatric history. She denied any abuse as a child and denied any drug use. Her father had been a high-ranking military man, and she had an estranged relationship with her older brother. Her father had died a few years before, but had left a large house and a substantial estate to her mom, as well as a trust fund for both her and her brother. She had done well in school and in college and had risen to an important position of authority and responsibility in her organization. But her depression continued to torment her, and she would cut herself in an attempt to rid herself of emotional pain. After one of her more significant episodes, her psychiatric team hospitalized her for the first time. It changed her life. Impatient, behind locked doors, Jan believed she had been abandoned by her team and parents. It is potentially a terrifying experience, being a patient in a locked ward. Imagine, already compromised, afraid, sad beyond measure, perhaps psychotic and delusional, paranoid, that the rooms harbor hidden cameras and that the medicine the nurses want you to take is obviously poison. It mm. mandates that a professional staff treat each person with dignity and respect, and that a clear message is sent. We are here to help. We are psychiatrists, nurses, social workers, psychologists, mental health workers, and not judges, for it is in the respect with which one affords one's patients that the real healing begins, that the sense of value is rekindled even as we see our patients as valuable. However, this does not always happen. Jan may not have been mistreated in the hospital, but she did feel very, very alone. Hopeless, helpless, worthless, unlovable, incapable. Even in the hospital, she tried to cut herself, to drown out the unbearable limbic pain that flooded her. She was too young, but already too old, very alone, and unsure if anyone would ever love her. And then he noticed her, and he became her friend. He was also alone and his blue eyes and blonde hair in the fluorescent light of the locked ward promised more than companionship, but protection, nurturing, love, acceptance, understanding. And then he was discharged. Then she was discharged. And then they met. And their tryst seemed unimaginably perfect and fulfilling. So she married, no longer out of reach, no longer a prize to be won, but a prize too easily conquered. The relationship changed. Nurture turned to neglect. Compassion to indifference. Acceptance to disdain. She described the relationship. Volatile. Abusive. Disrespectful. There was no romance, and the lovemaking was as close to rape as she could imagine. The sadism emerged. Sex was forced upon her no matter her own desire. 
even once at gunpoint. And Bridget was the result. He had blonde hair. Bridget had blonde hair. He had blue eyes. Bridget had blue eyes. He had a temper. So did Bridget. The child reminded Jan every day of the violence and cruelty of her marriage. Her husband soon abandoned her, but sent threatening letters for months. Then he stopped writing. Jan thought he might have been killed and was dead. Or at least she wished so. That's when I found myself asking Jan about her feelings towards her daughter. Did she see her ex and Bridget? Did she love her? I don't think I love her. No. With her mother and daughter out of the room, this admission fell from her lips with resigned sadness. But also a finality and relief. She no longer needed to pretend, at least not here. Her face did not reveal any remorse but a resignation and complacency not seen in the vast majority of mothers who had come to my office. I couldn't say that with her here, and I don't want my mother to know. Over the next several months, Bridget came in for play therapy. We spoke about her drawings of the dogs and how they were her real family. Her mom never played with her and always seemed depressed. It was all the little girl could do to get her mother to even shout at her when misbehaving. It seemed that Bridget had no idea she was actually unloved, but felt her mother was distant and uninvolved, too depressed to even move off the couch. In her play, Bridget would have animals protect and care for dolls of little boys and girls. When the children were in danger, it was the dog and not the mother doll that would place itself in between the girl and the threat. Sometimes the dogs would try to threaten the mother doll, or the little girl doll would pull and push the mother off the furniture. Sometimes the little girl doll would pretend to be sick or in danger, but most of the time the doll would stand angrily in front of the mother, berating. Finally, Bridget would suddenly make the mother doll jump up, angry but energized, and chase the little girl around. The dogs would then come and try to get between the two, but Bridget would shoo them away and let the mother doll catch her. As they touched, the mother doll would become caring, cooing, and loving, telling the little girl how sorry she was for scaring her, and promising to take her out for ice cream. For many children of depressed parents, sometimes they misbehave in an attempt to mobilize the parent out of their energic state. Maybe they subconsciously think, if I'm bad enough, my mom or dad will have to take care of me. Maybe if I put myself in enough danger, it will stimulate their biological need to take care of me so they can get their genes into the next generation. So, I'm going to be really, really a handful, and hope my energy rubs off and activates them. This strategy did not work with Jan. Indeed, things got so bad that Anne took over as the primary caregiver. But Jan retained guardianship. Bridget dropped out of therapy. Jan took her place. Every Wednesday at 9am, Jan came from her session. At first, she spoke about parenting, how difficult it was, how ineffective it was, and how much better her mother was. Bridget was still not listening, but was doing well at school. In fact, the school did not see any behavioral problems. They were all confined to the house. Jan became more despondent. She was already on medication when she entered my practice and went through a series of antidepressants and antipsychotics. She reported flashbacks of being abused by her ex-husband, sleepless nights, disrupted days, and she began feeling more and more suicidal. One Wednesday, she came in for a session and showed me the cuts she had made on her arms the night before. She acknowledged this was not the first time, but that she had been afraid to tell me. 
A secret is not a secret because of what we have done. A secret is a secret because we worry, how will someone view me differently if they know my secret? Jan was worried I would not treat her or that I would hospitalize her. She had been cutting since before we started the therapy six months before. Although I had asked her previously if she ever hurt herself, she rationalized her negative response because it didn't hurt. Instead, she felt an enormous relief from her emotional pain. So even though I had asked her in our very first encounter, when she acknowledged that she used to cut, if she still hurt herself, she had answered no. It doesn't hurt, so I wasn't lying. I deserve it anyway. I'm a lousy person. But now she was worried. For the first time, she had not stopped at her arms, but went on to her thighs and to her abdomen. She showed me the cuts on her belly. They needed stitches. We agreed to call her mom and have her taken to the ER for evaluation. Jan waited in my office and continued the session until Ann arrived. I received a phone call from the ER later that morning. The ER clinicians were worried because Jan could not guarantee her safety from herself. They were going to admit her as an inpatient psychiatric hospital. Anne was in agreement, and so was Jan. She was admitted in anticipation of a short stay, with treatment involving medication, changes, and addressing her flashbacks. The day after her admission, her inpatient team reported that Jan had found a piece of glass and cut herself. A short stay turned into weeks as she continued to regress. Her depression worsened. Medications were adjusted, but she still could not say she would be safe from herself if she went home. During one visit from her mom, Jan asked if she could give up custody of Bridget, at least temporarily. Anne agreed and became Bridget's guardian. Jan seemed relieved. Her anxiety and depression began to abate, and she was able to go home in safety. Months passed. Jan came in to see me every Wednesday. She was in a day treatment program and had moved into a small apartment, leaving her mom and Bridget a family home. Too many memories remain there. Pictures of her father in his military uniform, the bedroom where she grew up, the spidery woodshed hidden behind a small group of pine trees at the far end of the yard, the dining room, the living room, the attic, the smells, the colors, her mother caring for her own daughter, her mother caring at all. The flashbacks were worse. The cutting no longer satisfied what she described as voices calling her stupid, horrid, useless. In her day program, she listened to women talking about being abused, men talking about rage and anger, all of them working, working, working healing, leaving, moving on, while she stayed, crippled and ashamed, useless, unlovable, unlovable. It was a Tuesday night when my pager went off. The hospital operator told me that my patient Janet called and asked me to phone her at home. It was an emergency. Janet never paged me before. Faithful to her Wednesday appointments, she'd saved her distress until then. I called her at home. This is Dr. Schranz. What's the emergency? I wanted to tell you I won't be at my session tomorrow. Jan had never missed a session. Any other patient canceling a session would not be a pager-worthy event. They would leave a message on my voicemail, as instructed to do so more than 24 hours in advance, so the time could be filled by another patient. In Jan's message, there was more than just a cancellation of a visit. These thoughts flew rapid fire through my head within the few seconds between the end of Jan's last sentence and the start of her next. I'm going to cancel all the sessions. I just want to let you know. This did not sound good. What's going on, Jan? 
there was silence, long, but different than that initial silence when I'd first met her. Silences have enormous and varied meanings. Sometimes depression robs one of the ability to rapidly organize thoughts and respond. Sometimes silence is rageful, aggressive. Sometimes it speaks to the resignation of life's futility. Sometimes it is terrifyingly calm of a decision, an answer of haunting questions, doubts, despair, silent determination, silent resolve. With no response, I repeated the question, Jan, what's up? I'm dropping out of therapy. I got that part, but how come? I could feel my own anxiety increasing. Jan now lived alone in a small apartment two towns over from the hospital. The week before, she had spoken about how she felt her life was useless. She couldn't care for her kid. She didn't care for her kid. She couldn't concentrate in groups, didn't want to concentrate, wanted to sleep all the time, slept through the groups, hated the groups, hated herself. The cutting didn't help. She knew that taking pills would not, as she couldn't be sure. She needed to be sure. She had left the session promising to be safe. Another psychiatrist may have hospitalized her, but Jan and I had an agreement built on trust. Trust developed over the 18 months she had been coming to my sessions every Wednesday at 9 a.m. I knew she felt suicidal. It had become part of who she was. It was the best she could do right now. But she promised she would call before she tried anything. The phrase that I use in these circumstances, I'd said to Jan at that last session, I can live with it if you can. I know my patients may cut themselves, that they have pills in their cabinets, with which they could overdose. They have razors, knives, glass, sharps. For some, having access to lethality gives them a sense of comfort. If things get too overwhelming, they can always die. I can live with it if you can. Says to the patient that I, as your therapist, can live with these instruments as long as they do not kill you. If you can live with all the implements of suicide around you, live with them, then I can deal with it. But if they are going to kill you, then you come into the hospital. I can live with it if you can. If you can't live with it, the deal is off and you abdicate your responsibility for safety temporarily to me. Jan knew all this. She had pills, razors, sharps, things that take time to kill, and a promise to tell me if she was going to use them. A promise is a nebulous agreement between two people, but in therapy, it represents trust. A patient who trusts their therapist is one thing, but when a therapist has trust in a patient and lets them know of that bond, that connection, remarkable things can happen. From a theory of mind point of view, the patient recognizes their own sense of value and self-worth, that this powerful profession sees them as simply doing the best they can, as capable, strong enough to tolerate the anguish, determined to come to terms with their distress and to live. The difference between attachment and connection. A lot has been written about attachment. It is one of the cornerstones of psychology. Attachment theory explores how we attach to others. There are four basic types of attachment influenced by our early childhood relationships. Secure, dismissive avoidant, anxious preoccupied, and fearful avoidant, aka disorganized. Very often, attachments can keep us in the past, powerfully taking us away from the present. In therapy, these attachment styles are explored, but the tool used to explore them safely is the connection a patient has with their therapist. Connection allows for the freedom of exploration. Uncovering the sources of the often disrupted attachment 
that may have brought the person to therapy in the beginning. A safe and I am connection is the foundation of the vulnerability that people may experience. Finally, recognizes that they can be vulnerable without being in danger, in danger of being judged as less than. You will see me use the word connection in this book rather than attachment to describe our human need to feel part of a group. There was Jan on the other side of the phone. I heard her breath, choppy, labored, anxious, canceling not only tomorrow, but all her appointments. Another silence, broken. I have a gun. With those four words, Jan changed the rules. My anxiety rose. Guns are too quick. I can't help you if you have a gun. I know. I just wanted to tell you. Thanks. So now what? What do you think I should do? That's up to you. I just wanted you to know. But how come? You didn't have to tell me. I would have been waiting for you to show up tomorrow, and you would be dead. I would send the police to your apartment, but you would be dead. Guns work too quick, Jen. I promised. I'm just keeping my promise. Beginning in the third year of medical school, the true start of one's clinical rotations, the overarching experience is not simply learning how to recognize diseases or diagnose the source of fevers or to learn about broken bits of the human body. It is not just how to read a lab result, how to listen to a patient's words, heart, lungs, bowel, how to decide which medication to use, which antibiotic, which anti-inflammatory. The true learning that occurs over tens of thousands of hours is how to rapidly synthesize an enormous amount of information, extract the critical components, assess the situation, make a swift and salient decision, and then apply treatments. I was faced with a decision now. I could keep Jan talking and find a way to contact the police, have them go to her home, disarm her, and bring her to an emergency room for evaluation and hospitalization. Part of me screamed to just do it. But Jan had called me. This meant something. She called to tell me she had a gun. We had a promise to each other. I can live with it if you can. You can't live with a gun, Jan. It's too quick, too permanent. You changed the rules. I can't live with that either. The next words that came out of my mouth seemed impulsive on my part but were based on the 18 months of trust Jan and I had built up. Based on my thousands of hours of training, synthesizing information, interpreting the data, making decisions. I was about to test the strength of our relationship, the strength of her connection, the strength of meaningful therapy. I can't treat you if you have a gun. You have to give it back if you want to stay my patient. In retrospect, it was an enormous risk. The gun could have gone off right there. Jan could have said, fine, I won't be your patient. I won't be anyone's patient. Pulled the trigger and silence, silence. No shot, no explosion, silence. Which one? Was this a silence of defiance? About to be underscored by the crack of a pistol? Was this the silence of despair? A hopelessness so profound, the only solution was to pull the trigger. No, I could hear in the silence a contemplation, a consideration. Jan was thinking. I could hear her breathing. The character was different, not abrupt, choppy like before when she waited to tell me of her new possession. She was listening, waiting for how I would respond. I'm going to trust you, Jan. I'll call you back in 20 minutes. If you don't answer the phone, 
I'm going to call and send for the police. 20 minutes. Okay. I'll call you then. I heard Jan put down the phone and then did I. 20 minutes. Would she pick up? So I would be really interested for, for folks who listen to this, either now or in the future, um, what would you do next? What would you do? Write it down. Send us, send us a comment uh, on Facebook. Send us a post. Send us a thought of what would you do next? Would, would you have done what I did? Which was, you know, I'll call you back in 20 minutes. It, it was, I mean, I can still remember. I remember exactly where I was when that happened. Um, Carol and I, we, we were living in Waltham. I was medical director over at McLean. And I remember I had this tiny little study that, uh, that was my, my little space. And that's where the phone was not a cell phone. I mean, we would, cell phones were just starting, you know, flip phones. It's just a, re- a regular phone, picking up the phone, you know? So. And this woman was desperate. She, yeah. was at, she was at the edge. Yeah. Yeah. So and one wrong move could have, you know, been disastrous, right? Well, one we'll see what happens move. next. I hope. People get the book, Unleashing the Power of Respect, The I Am Approach, coming out soon in bookstores near you, as well as Amazon and everything else. So what is, let's go back just for a moment. Um, we'll, we'll come back to this in a few weeks, folks, because we're, we're going to have a couple of other guests, and then we're just going to be focusing uh, after our guests. Um, sometime in the beginning of February, we're going to be focusing really just on unleashing and on the I Am again. We're going to really dig deep into it. What do you make of the drawings that Bridget was doing and the games that she was playing with the dogs? How would you interpret that? What do you think? I mean, there you are. You're you're reading this, right? And you're reading about a girl who's, what, like eight, nine years old, and she's drawing dogs. And then she's playing with dogs. And what, what do these dogs do? First of all, what does a dog represent in general? What's the first thing that comes to mind? You think of a dog? Companion. Peaceful. Companion. Yeah. What else? Companion. Subservience. Subservience. Protector. Protector. Unconditional love. Yeah. They're there for you. You know, the dog is there. So the fact that she was drawing a dog at all and not a cat or a bird or a dinosaur, just that small thing. This is this is how some people think. This is how psychiatrists think, is we think, okay. Why this? This is the I am, right? Why this as opposed to anything? She could have drawn anything. And then the interaction. And there are three dogs, right? And remember, there's one in the middle, the smallest one looks the most dangerous. Well, which one is that? There are three people in the room. There's Bridget. There's her grandmother and her mother. Bridget is the smallest. So this small dog, and it's completely unconscious. And it's not like Bridget is knows that that's what she's doing. But there are these three dogs, and the two older dogs aren't facing each other. Their backs are to each other. And the little dog is in the middle, the most dangerous. Right? I mean, it's, it was just incredible to me to, to, to see how this little girl was expressing all these things that 
she couldn't really put into words. But was this is what play therapy is about. This is why play therapy is so incredibly powerful. Is a lot of it, it's in a concept called displacement, where you, it's not you, because it may be too difficult for you to talk about these things. It's the dog doing it. It's somebody else. Sometimes when a, well, a, when a kid won't be able to answer something, I'll say, well, you know, think, think of another kid. You know, you know, what, what, what do you think they would do? And it gives them an opportunity to displace, to move away from themselves into somebody else. And it's somehow safer to talk about your feelings as if there's somebody else there. It's fascinating. So that's why I hope people pick up the book. Because it's these windows into who we are, but not pathologizing. You know, Jan had already experienced cutting and people freaking out and putting you in a hospital. I could have done that. I didn't, you know, when, when she went to the hospital, I mean, I, I had to send her to get stitches. Because otherwise, she wouldn't have gotten an infection. It could have been really, really bad. But I wouldn't have hospitalized her. But that's, unfortunately, not always the case. So, what do you think? You think people are going to want to read it? I do. Why we do what we do. That's right. Tom, what do you think? Well, the listeners are in the grip of Zagarnik effects, aren't they? They, uh, (laughs) They need closure. So, I mean... It's a law of nature that they have to get it now. <laughs> let, so. Should we let them know what happens? Nope. Absolutely no. not. <laughs> no, no. No, no. But do you want... It must have been a long 20 minutes for you, buddy. It was, it was the longest. Un, it was unbelievable. And looking back on it, I'm thinking, what, what was I thinking? But I yeah. trusted her. You know, we'll see what happens. Can you just read the title of the next chapter? Chapter, was that was chapter three? That was three. What's the title of chapter four? I am perspective, the power of respect. Right. So this story illustrates what respect can do. It's the first story of many stories. There's a story about a person with obsessive compulsive. There's a story about a person with borderline. There's a story about a person with Asperger's. There's a story about a person with bipolar and one with schizophrenia. And each one I then look at through an I am lens. So there's one on respect, the the, the I am on stigma, the I am on diagnosis, but also the I am on happiness, on pleasure, on free will, on crime, on aggression. Because these are I am's. It's the hardest part about the I am. How can something that is aggressive, how can war be an I am? But if you don't like it, you can change it. But if you deny that it's there, how are you meant to change anything? If you don't know why something's happening, how are you meant to change it? And the I am is your roadmap to that knowledge and wisdom. So you can figure it out. Only four domains, the home domain, the social domain, 
the biological domain, and I see, which is theory of mind, talk about. I think that's it. Those are the four domains. Spirituality encompasses all of them. But those are the domains. Folks, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.